Good morning, America. Good morning, Canada. Good morning, the many countries in Central and South America. Today, we are launching Sales a Force for Good. We are a global community committed to raising the bar when it comes to sales. We are bunch of sales professionals who understand that sales is the powerhouse of every economy. And we want sales to focus on what sales used to focus on, which is delivering success and service to our customers. We want everyone to be rewarded for that success, to raise the standards of behavior, ethics, and skill in our wonderful profession. We want to build the future leaders and give them the tools and skills to make sales a force for good and to make sales an aspirational career choice for future generations. So hello, Maritz. Hello, Diana. Hello, Lauren. Lovely to have you on. For anyone in the US, I apologize in advance. I didn't realize that your clocks had gone forward for summertime this weekend. And so many of you will probably have scheduled 1 p.m. rather than 2 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. rather than 11 a.m. for Pacific Standard. So if you have missed this, then please comment and get in touch. We're looking for people to volunteer. We're looking for people who are interested in engaging. And above all, what we want is for you to have your voice. This isn't about me or any individual. This is about us all raising our game. So I'm going to start with a really interesting question for you to mull over. We're going to go live fully in uh, six minutes, but this is the preamble. So my challenge to all of you is if you asked your customers, how did I do in today's meeting? Have you seen better? And how can I improve to be of more value the next time we engage? What kind of response do you think you might get? So I have a number of guests who I have invited, but uh, my worry is that I'm too stupid to use the technology I have. So with the timings, I may have messed up. However, I'm pretty sure that there are going to be lots of you out there who have questions. So in the chat, please, 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 what I'd like you to do is engage and interact. If you are hearing people saying things that you agree with or disagree with, chime in. And my my question is always, how can we raise the game? I don't want this to be what we're against. It's too easy to fall into the trap of being against stuff. And if the last year has taught us something, it's that. I want to be a force for good. So what can we do as sellers, as managers, as sales leaders, as marketers, as customer success folk, as operations people to raise the bar? What do we need to do to challenge ourselves? And how can we improve our delivery of outcomes to our customers? At the end of the day, customers rent outcomes. And absolutely, Maritz, channel sales is very firmly in the future of selling. I predict that direct sales forces from vendors will shrink 
and more and more will go to the channel. So we're going to be building um, a number of parallel communities, each tackling issues, and we're also going to be having a monthly theme. And each month we will tackle one difficult problem. And they will be things like, how can we recruit better so that salespeople are set up for success? How do we eliminate the disconnect between marketing, sales, and customer success so the customer enjoys a seamless journey throughout, or a seamless experience throughout that journey? What do we need to do in order to change the way we are measured and compensated? And I have my good friend, Tom Williams. Hello, Marcus. Hi, Tom. All well? Good. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, sorry for any confusion. I didn't realize you guys had put your clocks forward uh, yesterday. So my timings are slightly out of kilter. But I'm hoping that won't affect yeah. the quality of the conversation. Good, good. I sent you an email yesterday about um, connecting with Anthony Condoras. Andy, uh, Anthony, by way of uh, background, he wrote a book called Run Frictionless. And uh, I think I've got a copy of it here someplace. I did write to him. That's a very impressive stack of books there. Yeah, thank you. That's just the ones I've read in the last few months. This is the name of the book, and it's all about helping yeah. founders and startups. And I wrote okay. a book. I included the book review because it's on Goodreads. I put it on Goodreads and on LinkedIn yesterday. I think you're really, I think it'd be a great book to help you with your startups that you're working on. Okay. And uh, he'd be I'm mainly focused on scale-ups, but... I am working with some startups, so that'd be very helpful. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the book works well, even with, with people who are um, trying to scale up their, their sales. And I think the other thing, Marcus, he'd be a great guest on your one of your podcasts. I have invited him following your introduction. Good. Um, so uh, thank you for that. I'm setting the scene because we're due to start in one minute. So trying to sign into your 2 p.m. session, but they can't find a link. Okay. 30 seconds to go. Yeah, and if you need any help any with this at all, let me know. I'm glad to help you anyway. Excellent. Well, we are looking for volunteers, and we're going to be holding a meeting on Thursday um, for volunteers to basically put themselves forward. I can't do it all myself, and frankly, I'd be terrible at it. So that's one of the themes that we're going to be kicking off with. Yeah, just tell so, me the Send me the link, and if I can jump on a call, otherwise just assign me something. Excellent. Okay, so a very, very, very warm welcome to everybody out there in uh, internet land. I'm just going to bring my pal Eric Shulman in. Eric is somebody that I've worked with for the last 17 years. And so, Eric, welcome. Hello, Marcus. How are you today? Excellent. Very well, thank you. Let me just do a quick preamble and then I'll do introductions and we'll get the conversation going. Today, we are launching a global community called Sales A Force For Good. The objective is to raise the bar in sales as a profession globally. Over the last 50 years, I, I believe that sales has been hijacked and has moved away from its original purpose, which was is to serve customers and help them achieve the outcomes that they want in order to help them be successful. And I think what's happened is we've focused 
internally on how do we hit our quota? How do we grow our business? And as a result, sales has suffered. Salespeople have become less customer-centric than they should be. And as a result of that, we are fixated on the measurement of not necessarily uh, useful metrics. It takes our attention away from the customer at the heart of everything that we do. And we are aiming to turn sales back into a powerhouse for the economy. We want to elevate the standards of behavior, ethics, and skill in sales and sales management and sales leadership. We want to drive, uh, identify and drive success for customers, partners, and sellers, and reward all who contribute to that success. And we want to build the future leaders and give them the tools and skills to make sales truly a force for good. And ultimately, what I would love is for sales to be an aspirational career choice, along with astronaut, pilot, fireman, uh, doctor, vet, and so on. So without any further ado, what I'd like to do is introduce my guests. So Tom, Tom Williams uh, has written a fantastic book called Customer-Centric Selling, and he has been a CEO. He's been on the purchasing side. He's run consultancies. He's run training businesses, and he's worked in pretty much every aspect of the sales profession. And Eric uh, Shulman is a long-term Sandler trainer, a dab hand at golf, and a Floridian native who spends an awful lot of his time uh, out in the sun, as you can tell by his dusky complexion and his general demeanor. So welcome, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Even if I got your name wrong, uh, and I've known you for years, but All I right. do that for my, my children You're my well. cousin, too. That's why. Excellent. Okay. And I've got Jeremy uh, on as well. So let's have Jeremy come in. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? Doing well. How are you? Excellent. Which Jeremy are you, just out of curiosity? Uh, this is Jeremy from, from White Rabbit Intel. Ah, excellent. Good stuff. So Jeremy is a customer success guru who has more patience than you can possibly imagine because customer success, frankly, I think has one of the hardest jobs there is, which is onboarding customers and dealing with so many of the uh, joys. There's a little play <laughs> on your name, the joy of uh, customer idiocy. But again, we don't blame the customer because when the customer is wrong, it's often our fault. Tom, could you give us 60 seconds on your background, please? Sure, uh, Marcus. My, you know, my background was I started in sales when I was about uh, seven years old, the lemonade stand and then uh, shoveling snow and things like that, uh, cutting lawns and uh, progressed up through uh, being a v VP of sales and marketing worldwide for a medical device company selling high technology products. In fact, it was actually with all these mechanical ventilators that you hear about now with COVID, that was the market and the space that I was in for years. Then I started a medical services business, uh, sold it, and went to work for uh, another company and started a medical services business for them. And then ultimately became a CEO of a hospital and then uh, decided to start my own consultancy business. I've had a lot of fun sitting on both sides of the C-suite desk and hearing it from, from sales reps that were trying to sell to me and then hopefully helping my sales reps be a little more effective when uh, they were trying to sell to the C-suite and other folks. 
Excellent. Eric, one minute on you. One minute on you. I'm a serial entrepreneur who's been in sales. I started much later than Tom. I was 12 when I started, when my dad <laughs> When my dad opened a record store in uh, Levittown, New Jersey, six months before the Beatles were on the Ed Sullivan show. So I all of a sudden was selling guitars and records, sort of, uh, you know, sales being an accidental profession. Uh, I went from that into my own direct marketing business, which I ran for 10 years, grew it to the largest in Orlando. I sold that in 92, met my wife who had a bakery. She was a one-woman shop making four or five cakes a week, competing with the grocery store. I became sales and marketing. In six months, we went from four a month at grocery store prices to 15 to 20 a week with seven employees at about double the price. Um, I, I always say that people will pay for quality. Left that when we sold that business and went in the consulting field for about eight years and sold consulting services. And in 2003, on April Fool's Day, I opened a Sandler training office in Orlando. Uh, I actually did open it on April 1st. Made more money in the next eight months than I made in the previous year working for the management firm. And I sold that in, uh, I guess it was May of 2018. I still work part-time in that, but I basically tell everybody I'm Cialis for salespeople. I get them up in the down economy and keep them up longer. <laughs> Excellent. Highly appropriate introduction. Okay, Moeed. Hi, yes. Uh, so, Moeed Amin. I am currently uh, training salespeople, working with entrepreneurs to scale their, their sales function from uh, wherever it is to $50 million plus. So I've been in sales for about 15 years, worked in both sales, account management, leadership roles for both small businesses and multi-billion dollar companies. But I also have a neuroscience background. So I became obsessed even more with neuroscience and cognitive behavior and psychology when one of the textbooks fell in my head when I was cleaning out the uh, bookshelf. And uh, it really turned my sales life around. And uh, so what I do is I teach and help sales professionals um, using both best practices that I source and from everywhere, as well as grounded uh, in science around behavioral psychology, you know, why and how do people make the decisions that they do? And how, do, how can you kind of reverse engineer that into your sales process and your approach so that you're really aligning with the buy and creating trust, which is the really big part. Excellent. And I'm delighted to have Juliana Vida as a guest as well. Juliana, would you mind giving him, uh, I'll give you 90 seconds because you've got a very colorful background. <laughs> Thanks, Marcus. I'm glad I was able to join today. I am currently in a, uh, I'll call it a technology evangelist role at Splunk, which is a, a data platform software company. But my career has not been in sales. My career has been in the military and in public service for the federal government. I'm a retired Navy commander. I spent most of my time, a couple of years driving ships and most of my time flying helicopters and ended up in the Pentagon. And in the Pentagon, I uh, was fortunate enough to be placed on the chief information officer's staff. That's when I got involved in, in IT and technology. And then fast forward a couple of years, left the government as the deputy CIO for the Navy and um, started to be a, an advisor to CIOs in the federal government uh, when I worked for Gartner, CIOs in the federal government, and now across the whole public sector at Splunk. So I use my operator knowledge and my having been on the other end of leveraging technology and its 
let's just say various forms of maturity, um, to now talk to leaders and up-level the conversations that splunk to senior level decision makers and influencers and policymakers about the mission and business value of data and technology and what what's the so what for them, you know, not necessarily details about the products. And I don't carry a bag or have a quota, but I, I help to influence the decisions of the people who make big purchasing decisions across the federal government and state and local governments, leveraging my military background. So it's a it's a pretty cool um, kind of role for me. Excellent. Okay, so before we get any further, what I would like to do is establish uh, something of a manifesto in terms of what we are here to try and build. The idea has come about after 35 years being in sales and experiencing the good, the bad, and the ugly. What I would really like to be able to do is create an environment that delivers buyer safety. I think far too often, the buyer is almost an afterthought. And as a result of that, what we end up with is a poor outcome for the customer. So I don't know if you can see that, but this is a model that I've been developing. It's by no means the finished article. So I fundamentally believe that what we should be delivering, and every customer deserves to feel safe when a salesperson turns up. And in order to do that, we have to be trusted and we have to earn their trust. And we have to remember trust is hard earned and easily lost. We must always be relevant. And part of the problem that I see nowadays is that often we are so fixated as a profession in peddling product that we have forgotten the context in which our customers exist. And we should be all about service. And the customer should be at the heart of everything that we do. Now, in order to deliver buyer safety, we must be rigorously authentic. There is no room ever to lie to a customer. And we must be vulnerable enough to be willing to tell them that we don't know the answer, that the customer may be better served by going to a competitor, and we have to put ourselves in a position where we may be hurt and where we may lose by putting the customer's interest before ours. We must be ready to enter into constructive conflict, and what that means is we need to be ready to have difficult conversations. We need to be ready to engage in assertive conversations where a customer or a prospect is overstepping a boundary. But in order for them to understand where those boundaries are, we must always communicate with clarity. And we have to have a bilateral communication that is clear at all times. We must deliver value. And in order to do that, we have to surrender our outcome in favor of delivering their outcome. We must work towards a win-win or no-deal outcome. So if it's not right for them or it's not right for us, then we have an obligation to disqualify ourselves out and to refer them on to someone better. And in order to do that, we have to operate from a position of mutual respect and equal business stature. And we must be ready to do difficult work by rolling up our sleeves, getting down and dirty in the trenches, and partnering with them in order to help deliver the outcomes that they need and want. And their success is dependent more on our ability to deliver the outcome than the experience they have. And the single biggest 
lever that we have. Sorry, I almost said lever then. I turned American. And the big, single biggest lever we have is the experience our people have, the level of engagement our people have in everything that we do for the customer. And the problem is that I think too many people have forgotten all of this in favor of growth at any cost, in favor of hitting our quota no matter what, in favor of winning an argument with marketing or customer success. And the net result of that is that the customer suffers, salespeople are caught in the middle, middle management is currently uh, under immense pressure. And what I want to do is elevate the, uh, the game so that as a profession, we are perceived by the customer as being people that they want to work with, not as LinkedIn's end of the year study suggests uh, 67% consider sales and salespeople to be morally bankrupt, and a Gartner report that suggests that 33% of business-to-business buyers want a 100% seller-free buying experience. All of that is on us, and I want this community to build the future of sales so that we transform it into the glory that it should be instead of the pariah it's become. So, quick introduction for Peter. Peter, hello. Good morning. It's um, quarter past five in the morning here, so that's why I'm looking a bit disheveled. Thank you for getting up very early. Peter (laughs) is in Australia. So, Peter, could you just give us 60 seconds on your background too, please? Sure. Okay. So, after 30 years um, in in sales and marketing in the field, 10 years in my own companies and 20 years in in the corporate sector, I um, decided that um, I needed out and I started my own consulting business and I call myself a sales acceleration specialist these days because I have um, I have seen that the the old way of selling has run its course. This this madness that the shareholders put pressure on the CEO, the CEO puts pressure on the board, the board, the board puts pressure on the CEO, the CEO puts pressure on the sales managers, the sales managers put pressure on the salespeople, and the salespeople put pressure on the customer to reach an arbitrary sales target every month. Right? Everybody gets stressed out, and and the sales uh, and the the buyers actually don't like it. Be surprised if any of you love to be cold called or spammed or, or reached out to on LinkedIn uh, with the promise of something that uh, the salesperson has no idea whether that you're even in the market for. So, so I have this philosophy that we now need to instead of ambushing the customer with an unsolicited sales message, we need to engage with them in a meaningful way and help guide and educate them to buy from us. On that note, I've just uh, come off a call with Justin Michael, who runs SalesBorgs, and uh, he made a really important point, which is so much marketing is all about trying to create personalization at scale, which has failed miserably. Um, it, it, it all ends up with being, you know, dear Marcus, dear Tom, dear Eric, and the rest is all the same and generic, right? Because they absolutely. can't afford to make it super personalized. Um, so what he's talking about is creating relevance at scale. And the problem is that almost no marketing is relevant. Most of it is just unwelcome interruption. So, Juliana, let's bring you in on this because you've been on the shitty end of the stick. When you sat there and received marketing from vendors, 
what is it that happens normally if you just get the generic marketing tap that comes through so that people listening can be aware? Actually, Peter just explained it. It's someone telling me what they think I need or what they hope I need, because that's what they're selling, trying to make their case without knowing anything about me. And uh, it quickly just spirals into me wishing they would stop wasting my time. And not only that, uh, there are companies, big brand companies with very expensive luxury products that I used to buy that I no longer will buy because of this pretending to be um, genuine outreach, which really is not genuine at all. For example, a car that I used to own, it ran out, I turned it back in, but I still get emails and notices in the mail about my planned maintenance that I need to schedule after two years of not even being a customer anymore. Customer anymore. So now I've decided to take my money to another car company and, and spend it there. So that's the crappy end. And uh, Peter explained it much more eloquently than, than I just did. Dan Kennedy says the price of free marketing is all the people who will never do business with you. And that it has to be one of the most important lessons that we can learn. If we are not relevant, we have no place bothering these people. So, Peter, go, go ahead. I just want to add, Julian, a very good point the, and, and a great example. I, I just want to add that, that everybody's trying to fix everything with a damn app now. I was approached um, just, uh, I think, last, last week, it's only Tuesday, with an app where they, they said, oh, you can hyper... AI-driven hyper-personalization of, of email outreaches. And their example was that they said in their, in their opening statement and in their email to me, they said, oh, we see that you give a, a, a try before you buy offer. That's, that's great. But what about blah, 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 right? So what they've done is the AI, presumably, has picked up on something from our website and, and made that the opening line. But it's, it's so bloody banal, anybody can look through it, right? It's not AI at all. It's not I. It's just A. So this, this obsession with absolute supremacy is just um, insane. I talk about humanization of selling, yeah? not automation of selling. So, Moeed, let's bring you in on this. Um, how can we humanize selling and marketing again so that it is hyper-relevant and the customer feels like they're the center of the universe instead of somewhere at the end of a long chain of internal meetings uh, product development, trying to squeeze them into a, uh, a square peg into a round hole? Wow, that's a really big question. <laughs> Why do you think I gave well, it to you? Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> Instinctively, let's start with the first part, which is the relevancy that, that uh, Peter and Juliana have mentioned. If you're a salesperson, firstly, a lot of salespeople don't even do their preparation, right? So, so one of the things that I, that I talk about with a lot of people is we actually did this in CEB before it was acquired by Gartner. Uh, so, Juliana, nice to meet you. <laughs> there are four, four elements that you want to look at when you're doing any research at a very high level. And the reason why I talk about research is you don't start your research from the product and from me perspective. It is purely research from the buyer's perspective and their world. What tends to happen with salespeople is they say, as you say, how can I fit this circle block into a triangular hole, right? So they think, I've got this product, this company is, should be a good fit. How do I force? So how do I look for information that basically confirms what I think should be done and what I think they should need? There's a scientific element to this, which is your reticular activating system in your brain. 
does a couple of things, but one of the major things it does is it filters all that sensor sensors around you to basically allow things in, into your into your conscious from the world around you that fits and aligns with your opinions, your beliefs, your values, your beliefs about your place in the world. So if you suddenly decide to buy a red car, all of a sudden, one in three cars you look around you are red cars, whereas before, you didn't even <laughs> notice them. We as salespeople do that. We say, this is my product, and I'm going to scan through the information and see for look for anything that aligns to what I think I'm going to push at them. What we need to start with is a buyer research place, which is industry, company, role, and then person. There is a lot of research out there that says a lot of buyers really love when a salesperson or anyone they do business understands their industry. And when you're doing your research, that is important because if someone says, I'm going to grow by 2% this year, sorry, let's say 10% this year, but their industry is growing at 20%, that tells you a lot about the business and the decisions those executives have to make. So starting with research is probably one of the most powerful ways to actually be relevant to the buyer and to do that research from the buyer's perspective, wanting to understand the buyer's world for you to say, is this buyer going to actually benefit from what I have to offer or are they not a client of mine for now? It doesn't have to be forever, just for now. And too few sales leaders and business leaders encourage almost any form of research. I used to remember being told, I used to spend about 30 minutes at least research, not prospecting, but before I speak to someone that I've actually have a scheduled call with. And I remember someone saying to me, that's too long. How can you short it down in five minutes? And I said, well, you're going to have to change my sales targets if you're going to ask me to do that. On that, I, I, I always rail against the fact that the, the sales manager might say the beginning of the month or the quarter, I'd say, take your time, get to know your customers, you know, understand their problems, and then you can have a more meaningful conversation. And then three weeks later, towards the end of the month, they go, Close those suckers, you know? Close and, those, and, yeah. and so it just confuses the, sell, the hell out of the salespeople and, and the customers that all of a sudden in a hurry. It starts from the top, right? I mean, to really to answer your question, Marcus, it starts from the top. It's the it's the expectations and therefore the incentives that we give to people because they drive behavior at the end of the day. If those expectations are incentives are really crappy, right? Then you are going to push people to behave in a crappy way. If you ask crappy questions, you get crappy answers. Tom, can we bring you in? Because obviously your whole mission is about making selling more customer centric or making it customer centric. So talk to me about uh, the impact of a self-centered sales approach and how it feels different when you are a buyer and you have someone who is totally focused on you and your outcomes and what matters to you. Before I, I segue into that, can I make a couple of comments about what Moeed said? I totally agree with you, Moeed, about the research. I think the... Um, uh, in the sales organizations I've run, you know, it's all about, you know, what, understanding the buyer and the research we did was pretty methodical. And we looked at, you know, and we had a pretty good marketing department, but they actually got out in the field. You know, this was pre-COVID. They actually, one of my favorite questions to ask marketing people is how often are you in front of customers? And if I don't see that number to be 50 to 60%, they have no credibility at all with me because they have no idea what's happening at the street level, you know, with a customer. 
And and second thing I would say about research is a fair amount of the research that's published is pure crap. The Gardner stuff, the CEB stuff is really good, but most of it is not very good research. And if you start to look at the at the methodology and who's actually answering these questions, you find out that the you know that there's a lot of garbage in there. Uh, of and 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 and, the, and what it does is skews the end results. And it gives you results that you look at and you take this stuff to the bank and you say, well, this is what the what the buyer is really thinking about. And it's inaccurate because you're asking salespeople, uh, not buyers, you know, to answer these questions. Uh, and so you really have to look at the methodology very, very carefully. And we've looked at several studies and some of them are just laughable. You can't you can't even uh, begin to think about them uh, being uh, relevant at all. In terms of, of, of buyer centricity, here's the kinds of things that we look at is when we think about a buyer-centered seller. We think about somebody uh, that as uh, a seller that looks at at being buyer-centric in a couple of ways. One is they have a mindset and a and a strategy uh, to help a prospective buyer navigate the buying journey that they might not even know what that journey is all about in order to achieve the relevant outcomes you know that they want through collaboration. And so, uh, if I went back to Marcus's circle, you know, the three things that we focus on, on is one is Starting with understanding the situation, you know, what is the buyer's current state? What's the root cause for why they are where they are? What's the future state that they like to like to get to? You know, what's the priority and urgency from a company organizational point of view to actually do something different? You know, who owns the problem? You know, and then really get into understanding, you know, what's the cost of an action? You know, from if they don't do anything. In order to do that, all that stuff. You've got to be able to do a couple of things. One is collaborate with the buyer. You've got to be able to co-create solutions. And you've got to build consensus. And you build consensus, really, there's three different levels of consensus. One is around a problem today. You know, they got, you got to get agreement that there's actually a problem, opportunity, or threat that they actually want to do something about. Because that all, we all know that all problems are not created equal. And some problems, you know, are nuisance problems. They're irritating problems, but they're not critical problems that need to be fixed. So the second thing is, is it was once we achieve consensus, then we need to co-create a solution. And one of the things that we've been doing for a long time, and we've got an ebook coming out on it in a, in a, in a few weeks, uh, is creating mutual action plans. You know, is we actually create mutual action plans. I've been doing it for years with our clients. And what it does, it reduces buyer friction, number one. Number two is, is it, it gets that, it starts to collaborate between the buyer and the seller together because I can say to you, you know, have you ever bought this product or service before? And it may be that you've never have. It may be that you've never had an opportunity to, or a need to do it. It could be disruptive technology. Uh, it could be substitute technology with some additional features and benefits. And you need help to buy that. And so I can walk you through a process of saying to you, here's the typical steps that most buyers go through in order to make that in, an informed, intelligent decision. Would this be useful if I shared with you our template, our model? And we'll modify it to, you know, to meet the needs for your organization. Uh, and it'll be your document. And whether you buy from me or not is irrelevant. You know, it'll be a document you can use with whatever supplier that you use with. We've been using this for five years. I've never once had a customer turn me down from wanting to develop that tool. And once they get it, the first thing they say is, you guys sell differently. You guys sell differently. You know, you guys are interested in our outcomes and us getting a, a result. The second thing it does is when you build in milestones and things like that and action items, it eliminates ghosting, right? Which is one of the biggest problems for a sales rep. 
you know, all of a sudden you get to a certain point in the, in the buy process and people just stop answering emails or phone calls. You know, you eliminate all that kind of nonsense. You improve funnel to forecast accuracy. You improve customer intimacy. I mean, it just does a bunch of things. So those are just a couple tidbits of what we're, what we've been working on and what we're doing. And, and, and a lot of that stuff that we just, I just talked about is in our book, Buyer Center Selling. Excellent. So to build on that, Eric, the research is really important. Let's talk about rehearsal and the preparation that goes in before a meeting with any prospect at any stage in the cycle. Oh, what a good question. So many salespeople never really rehearse. They sort of wing it because, as we all know, sales is an accidental profession. How many of you on screen there actually have a degree in sales? <laughs> Notice nobody raised their hands. So we sort of wind up sales. We become experts. Moeed, you said something interesting that the, the comp plan, salespeople do what their comp plan tells them to do. Marcus, I have always found that going into a meeting with very little or no expectations, and ABC for me does not mean always be closing. It means always be curious. My first question to a prospect or a client is, why am I here? What are you hoping I can help you with? Our job is not to sell the aspirin. No matter how good our product is, our services, no matter how good our aspirin is, if they don't have a headache, it doesn't matter how good our aspirin is. And everybody goes in trying to sell their aspirin. So I think first what we have to do to go, I, Tom, I think you were in the medical field, right? Yeah. Um, CEO of a hospital is we got to do a proper diagnosis. And salespeople go in with an agenda of selling what they want to sell, what their boss told them to sell. Why don't we do a diagnosis on the patient? You may have a whole lot of shoulder joints, but if the guy needs a knee, it doesn't matter how good your shoulder joints are. So doing that diagnosis process, taking the spotlight off of us and our company and putting the spotlight on the prospect or the potential client, letting them feel not only are they special, but the entire reason you're there is basically to talk with them, get to know them, figure out whether they have a problem that you can help with. Have any of you ever been with a prospect and they you found that they didn't have a problem that you needed? I, I have been there. And you know, then you got to say, look, it doesn't sound, Moe, it doesn't sound like you really need what I've got. And when you say something like that, they look at you and say, I was sort of thinking the same thing, but I never thought I'd hear you say it. And from that point forward, you have total credibility with that person. You know, Marcus, I love the, the you know the the relevance part of, of 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 your diagram that you showed us, because if it's not relevant to their world, Tom, I think you said something also about understanding their world. When they understand that you understand what they're going through, when it becomes a how are we going to fix this, and how am I going to fix it for you, or how are you going to fix it? When you start using the right terminology with people. We talked about some of the, the psychological elements. Well, when they not only get their fingerprint on the solution, but you're literally crafting the solution on what they've told you they need. So many times people go in with a big proposal, and my recommendation is keep the proposal in your briefcase. Find out what they need. 90% of the time, what you have on that proposal would have lost you the sale rather than listening and finding out what they need and then offering them a solution that they're ready, willing, and able to purchase. I think when you collaborate with a customer and you build consensus around a, a potential solution, 
you know, and we're seeing more and more, you know, larger buying groups that are building consensus. That's a collective yes. Um, you know, what you end up doing is reducing risk and the deal sticks because it's their, it's their solution. It's not something you came up with as yeah. a risk. It's, it becomes their solution. And it's they buy into it. That's a shortened sales cycle. Yeah, the two of you crafted it together. It's our yeah. solution. Exactly. And when you do that, they're not going to look for somebody else. It was the chili that you made together that was really, really good. They're not going to go find another chili cook. They'll want to stay with the chili recipe that they have a part in making. On uh, the wider note, I'd like to bring Juliana back in at this stage. Juliana has a really interesting <laughs> role as a technical advisor. I don't think the title does it justice. <laughs> So can you explain what your function is within Splunk? Sure, Marcus. It's funny. I, I start out when I introduce myself and I say, hey, I'm the chief technical advisor, heavy on the advisor, not so heavy on the technical, because I want that to be very clear about here to have a conversation with you, here to have, uh, you know, talk to you about the why, the so what, why the, why the CXO should care about data and technology. And we leave like the detailed product discussions and the sales engineering discussions for those people at a later time. But that the role that I have as an advisor, which, you know, it perfectly fits me too, because I, so I can be authentic and I'm never, ever putting on a show. I'm, I get to be myself and, and that's a great position to be in and a great job to have, but through that advisory role, that's what, that's the relationship building is, is I, you can't advise somebody if you don't know anything about them. But one thing I always do um, what I do probably way too much is I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, not just gathering information about people so I can then go advise them or talk to them, but engaging in conversation with them, building a relationship and not with any kind of nefarious purpose like, aha, I'm going to use this someday and make you spend money on me. But because I truly enjoy learning from people and, and there's so much technology innovation every day. There's so, so much change going on in the world that I... I find like I need to stay engaged on social platforms in order to stay relevant or to be able to discuss with any level of depth at all, you know, the big topics of the day. So they call it social selling, you know, being on social platforms and building relationships and knowledge of your customer base or your prospect base just by engaging with them, asking questions. If someone in their post says, oh, I had a really crappy day today. What about all the rest of you? I'm the one that answers, well, Glad you asked, Marcus. I this is what I did today. You know, and all of that is building rapport and building relationship along the way. So that when there finally is a meeting and I get to go in as the CTA representing Splunk, they already kind of know me. Like they, they already know what I'm likely to say and not likely to say. And it's more of a comfortable conversation than a I'm here as part of the sales team. And can, can we build on the question that I asked Eric about rehearsal and preparation? <laughs> Because I know that's a fundamental part of what you do. Yeah, well, I mean, I agree with Eric and probably everybody else on the panel that was thinking the same thing, that there, there probably isn't anybody who does enough preparation, myself included, because that just takes a lot of time. But I continue to do my part to, when I do get involved in a meeting with, with sales team or marketing team, to encourage us internally to have a prep call, to do a run through as much as we possibly can. We don't get it right 100% of the time, but if you make an intentional effort to be prepared, you'll just show up prepared to the customer. I mean, like we've talked about here today, we're all consumers. We all deal with salespeople and organizations that we either like to engage with or we don't like to engage with. And the first ones that I don't ever want to spend money on again are the ones that clearly did no preparation and don't know me at all. 
it's a hard thing to do 100% of the time because there's only so many hours in the day. But I would argue that if we spent twice the amount of time preparing, we'd have we'd have more time back to really build on relationships and, and do the hard work. Let me build on this because it really is important. In my sales teams, I, I'm CRO for six companies at the moment. And our responsibility, I believe, is to put at least three minutes of rehearsal and preparation time for every minute we expect to be in front of the customer. And that sounds like an awfully high tariff, but let's put this into context. Connect and Sell do 40 million cold calls a year, and they are driven by data. And their research says that on average, it takes 33 dial attempts to get one effective on average, unless you are calling a senior executive in IT, in which case it's one in 46. The follow-on data on that is that one in 14 effectives on average results in a meeting. And the really depressing statistic is seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. So whilst it might uh, appear to be an extraordinarily high tariff in terms of time, when you consider the amount of money, time, and resource that is currently being squandered on marketing, cold calling, content production, in order just to have that initial conversation for a salesperson to blow seven out of eight, that, I think, is an act of gross misconduct if they have not prepared. And in my world, I think on the second uh, occasion, because you always give people a chance, that's a sackable offense. I'm uncompromising about this because when you consider the amount of constant noise, interruption, you do not differentiate by turning up and just vomiting product information. So, Tom, let me bring you in. Yeah, the only comment I was going to I was going to follow up on is that um, we wrote a blog on this topic a couple of years ago, and it was the title was "Are you after a sales call? Are you memorable or forgettable?" And uh, you know, and it really, if you really stop to think about it, is is a memorable sales call? You know, was was a guy or a gal that made a call that offered some value. And they want to be they're remembered by the buyer because they taught them something new. They challenged them in a way that was positive, you know, and they and they and the end result is I want to see that sales rep again, as opposed to the forgettable one where you think, you know, I don't ever want to see these guys again, or were they even here? They didn't resonate with us. And I think that it all comes down to the preparation. And I think, you know, also the rehearsal part of it as well. I always, always often talk about, you know, with salespeople is that the first time they actually rehearse is live in front of a customer. That's sad. We should be doing it with our peers. We should be doing it in front of a mirror. We should be practicing our craft and not doing it in front of a customer. And unfortunately, and, that's where most of the practice occurs. And the other thing we should definitely be doing uh, is bringing in friendly CXOs, CEOs, CFOs, COOs, and practicing with them so they can tell us where we are going wrong. Um, I, I've just done a series of about 20 interviews with CXOs, and every single one of them has said they look forward to a good sales call, but they happen so infrequently that they stand out. And what they want to be is smarter as a result of a salesperson turning up. Right. So, Peter, let me bring you in on this, because um, <coughs> the end of the funnel, I think, is uh, so important. But more often than not, 
because of the way we are measured and compensated and the way we are held to account, we forget that 95% of our target audience is not in the market to buy what we have to offer at the moment. And so we don't nurture the funnel. And so we, in, to a large extent, we alienate a lot of people who could be buyers in the future, but we've just pissed them off. I say the same thing. So, so this, this uh, separation of church and state that we said, I oh, know salespeople are much too precious to, to do prospecting, it means that we outsource the important part. I'm about to give a talk next month, and I'm, I've decided to call it that uh, opening is the new closing. Because uh, the way that you engage with a prospect the first time, you only get one chance to make a good impression, or to make a first impression. If you leave that to some junior person who does a 1,000 calls a day, hoping that somebody will be interested and they can then pass it on as a lead, uh, to, to sales, and sales has no idea what the conversation actually was. They just go, here's a lead and follow it up. And often the, the, the leads are squandered in the follow-up as well. Let's not forget that. But uh, I was going to, um, to say something additional, and that, and that is I spoke to just um, a salesperson yesterday who said that all their life they've been successful by building relationships with their customers and, and uh, engaging with them, and they built rapport, they built trust, and they built a relationship. And he said it's just not working anymore. Because executive buyers are just too busy and they've got their own KPIs and, and everybody's got known this environment has other things on their mind anyway. So, so this, this whole relationship building seems to have gone out, out of the window. And what you said, Marcus, hits the nail on the head, that, namely that people don't want a new friend. You know, they don't want their salesperson to be a friend. But the senior people understand that there is something that they don't know they don't know. And they don't mind somebody informed, somebody intelligent, some, somebody with uh, comes from, from a position of authority to tell them what they don't know. They find that really interesting. And so this, this is where the, the challenger model gets a bit misunderstood because people think we have to challenge the person, but we just have to challenge their thinking. And so it's incumbent upon marketing to create content that challenges a prospect's thinking, not generate a thousand calls that may lead to nowhere. <laughs> I think you're absolutely right, Marcus, that the, the emphasis and the energy and the money is being spent on the wrong end. The most important part of the sales process is outsourced to the most inexperienced junior people. Yeah. And this genuinely concerns me. And one of the things that I would really like to see challenged is how we structure the sales uh, machine, because I think there is a massive disconnect as you go bounce get bounced from marketing to sales to customer success and then into operations i think also the building of the list needs to be given to somebody who has experience and business acumen and that side of sales really needs a lot of work because just sending salespeople in as larry levine describes them as empty suits with commission breath that essentially is going to alienate a lot of buyers, whatever level they're at, especially senior buyers who don't have time. When I've interviewed these CXOs, most of them are doing their day job in the evening and weekends. They are being dragged from one meeting to the next. They're putting out fires. They're having to prioritize. Meanwhile, somewhere in the background, they have to execute the board's strategy. Someone coming along and telling you that they have a self-healing uh, server is of no interest to uh, you know, a CEO. 
Uh, what they want to know is, can you help me solve my problems? Are you going to help me advance my business? Can I create value by making the, uh, this investment? What are you going to help me replace? These are all questions going through their minds. They're not interested in the technical features and benefits of your product. That's the kind of stuff they delegate down the chain of command. So, Eric, let me bring you in on this, because what I'd like to explore, what we need to do in terms of shifting the mindset of leaders in terms of how we train our middle managers, because I think there is a, that is one of the points of greatest leverage uh, for us to create a better uh, profession. Well, Training the middle managers, we're talking about the, the sales managers that run the sales team for the yeah. of sales. If they're compensated based upon how much their team produces day-to-day, month-to-month, week-to-week, they're going to be driving their team to do just that. Everybody on the team, from the salesperson to the sales manager, the VP of sales, to the CFO and CEO, need to all be pulling in the same direction. If it is long-term growth for the company, if it's long-term relationships, then we have to gear everything, including the comp plan of the salespeople and the sales managers, to that. We're going to do, I don't know about you guys, I'm coin-operated, I will do what my comp plan tells me to do, okay, just like everybody else. So if a comp plan says make more dials, I'm going to make more dials. If it says have more conversations, now it's not about how many dials I make, but how many much time I spend on the phone. If it's set meetings, now I'm trying to set meetings. If it sells certain widgets, certain services, that's exactly what I'm going to try and do because that's how I generate money. So the middle management and the comp plan has to be in sync. If it's not, we're pulling in opposite directions. How many times have you worked with somebody on a sales team and you say, we have a lot of these in the warehouse, go sell them. And the salesperson makes 10 cents on this. Now, the salesperson makes $2 on every one of these that they sell. So at the end of the week, how'd you do? Well, boss, I showed everybody the pens, but they all wanted the mugs. Because <laughs> I the damn mugs. So really, we tend to overcomplicate it. Again, Tom, I'd love to bring you in on this. I have a view, uh, which I'm sure will be absolutely pilloried. But if we look at compensation schemes, and Juliana, I'd love to get your take on Moe too. What I believe is that we should uh, create compensation schemes that reward the customer telling us they have been successful and they have achieved their outcomes. Um, And it should be weighted towards that end, not the new business end. And that will then focus people on getting the right kind of customers and creating customers for life. Your thoughts, Tom? I agree with that, Marcus. I think it's a major shift. You know, I can't speak for I think I know that some work's been done, done like that in Australia. It seems to be a, a stronger push coming out of Australia for that than I've seen in the United States or the UK or any of the Asian communities. But I believe that concept is pretty interesting. Let me give you an example. I'm coaching a, um, a sales rep right now uh, that's been kind of an underperformer. And uh, we've got to the point where he's um, got a strong funnel. And I had a conversation with him a couple of days ago. And he said to me, he said, you know, I'm going to make my number, my, my 2021 number, by the end of, uh, end of March. 
And I'm my quota. And I said, congratulations. That's great. You know, I'm, I'm pleased that the, the coach is working. What are you going to do between April and, and uh, the rest of the year? He said, well, that's what he says. That's the decision I got to make. He says, I can either blow out my compensation plan or basically take the rest of the year off. <laughs> what does that tell you about the compensation plan? Right. I mean, you know, uh, and so we drive, you know, as Eric said, the compensation plan drives the behaviors. Right. And you show me a sales team or you, you come up with a, with a compensation plan. And I'll tell you, I'll take the top five guys or gals that are in that team and they'll tell you how to beat the comp plan. Oh, and yeah. products to go sell within an hour. They'll have figured out how to how to how to work the comp plan in their in their, their advantage. And so the comp plan has to change. And I think if there's two, if you want to change sales behavior, you've got to do two things. You know, one is change the comp plan, and two, change the coaching. You know, the coaching has got to be more around understanding how to how to coach to win deals. By helping the buyer buy as opposed to just jamming product down their, their throats. Uh, we got to change the perspective from the, well, of how the salespeople look at their process. Just like we have to change the perspective of the owner, of the buyer that we're working with. If we don't change how they look at the situation, we get caught in that trap. Well, if you think about it from a buyer's point of view, Eric, they look at this as being a complex purchase. We look at it as a complex sale. There's a, there's a basic dichotomy and difference there, right? I'm with you. And so we have to, you, have to you have to change the mindset of salespeople. And that's a very difficult thing because everything that's in a CRM system is around sales process. What steps I need to go through? I've got to, do, I've got to qualify. I've got to demo. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And nothing is around buyer centricity. Nothing is around how do I build consensus? How do I collaborate? How do I how, how do I understand the decision criteria? How do I mitigate risk? You know that's that's going to be cons that the buyer is going to naturally go through. How do I ensure that they're going to get the value that they need? We don't talk about any of those things in the sales process because it's a step that what somebody wants to go through. Well, I, I think there's a really interesting adjunct to this as well. I fundamentally believe that everybody who has contributed to the success of the customer should be recognized and rewarded. Now, this is difficult work, and this is where marketing needs to be part of that. Sales, management, customer success, operations. But most people will take the easy option, which is to go with your traditional comp plan and your traditional measures rather than put in the heavy lifting. So one of the themes that I'd love us to work on this year is how can we create those kind of comp plans that drive discretionary effort, that drive engagement throughout the entire customer journey in order to deliver the best possible outcome for the customer. And everybody in that value chain along that customer journey is recognized and rewarded. And they also have a voice because I think one of the most important things, my friend Ian Dodds, I said there are four things that manage, a good sales manager does, and he added a fifth. So I believe that the best managers hire the best people. Then they get the best out of them. That's proper pre-onboarding, onboarding, training, coaching, accountability. They make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. And Justin Michael is just about to release his new book, which I'm very excited about. 
And he uh, has the technology quotient in there. Uh, and the question we should always be asking is what is the minimum level of technology we need in order to help our salespeople perform at optimal level? And the fourth uh, issue is uh, how do they uh, managers help clear the roadblocks and protect salespeople from active idiocy from above? And Ian Dodds added a fifth one, which is to manage inclusively. It's to give everybody their voice. And I think if middle managers are taught how to do that, there was a Sandra Research Center study that came out at the end of 2020 that suggests only 6%, that 6% of sales managers are fit for purpose. And that's because most of them just get tapped on the shoulder because they were the top sales and get put into the role. Uh, and all they can do then is either what was done to them, or they can just shout and scream and beat their chests a lot. And then uh, occasionally they'll beat people with a carrot, and it's probably the wrong carrot. So, Moeed, can I bring you in on this uh, from the neuroscience and psychology perspective? Yeah, so I'll, I'll cover those things. And I'll also talk about the incentive, just to talk about your last point, which was 6% of middle managers are only fit for purpose. There was someone I interviewed and I've got to know called Max Cates, who wrote a book, Serve, Lead, Succeed. He was a sales leader in companies like AT&T and some other large ones. This area of servant leadership, you can actually see the characteristics and the qualities of the salesperson to understand if they have the markers of servant leadership before you even consider stepping them into that role. So I think what, what we term as high performance has to change when it comes to that promotion or that career ladder. So that's just a side note. The middle managers are, in my view, the most critical part of that sales chain, more important than the C-level person, because they are managing the sharp end of your business, touching the marketplace and the buyers. And when we look at the incentive scheme, it's got to be a balanced incentive scheme, right? So most incentive structures predominantly are all about the numbers. Hit your numbers and the characteristics and the qualities or how you go about doing so is almost an afterthought. What middle managers need to be incentivized on, yes, it's moving towards the numbers and a percentage of their incentive should be towards that. But a large part of their incentive should be towards building and developing the characteristics that lead towards healthy sales and long-term growth. So things like, you know, are they, are they measured on how much coaching, like authentic coaching they provide to their team, right? Are they measured on helping their salespeople, as you say, Marcus, collaborate uh, and connect with other parts of the business that are critical towards conducting healthy sales? Um, so I don't think enough of the incentive plans are geared towards those qualitative elements that are vital to making sure that your salespeople have the right characteristics. You know, you asked from a neuroscience perspective, because we were talking about incentives here, but from a neuroscience perspective, you know, we talked about um, co-collaboration at its basic level. If I'm invested in something, I have a skin in the game, right? I, I have... Uh, you know, I've put time and energy, precious energy in place to see that this outcome actually succeeds. And there's a bunch of research that shows that even if you put your energy in something that doesn't look like it will succeed, we tend to not just give up on it. We actually, since we're invested in it, we want to try and find the solution 
that will take us to the to to an outcome that we're happy with. So how many times have you worked with a contractor in your house or something like that? Something's going wrong, but rather than fire them, you said, you know what, I'm going to put some time in there, even though I've paid them and I thought this would be done properly. I'm going to put some time in place to make sure that this happens correctly. So there's not much really I can come from a, from a neuroscience perspective here because we're talking about incentives and it's quite basic. You know, if you if you give me an incentive and reward, I'm going to go for it. In sales, we're we're, we're taught to um, actually no, I can't. In sales, we're taught to sell on the pain, sell on the gap, and those things are important. But neurologically, our system is wired to either stay still and hide and be inconspicuous or move away from pain. So when salespeople are trained to say, if you don't do this, this is the pain you're going to get, my neurons are basically saying, move away. Whereas what we should be doing more of is moving towards pleasure. So the pain element should be used to create attention because our brain is looking for things that are incongruent, things that stand out in terms of saliency. And that's why, you know, using insights and things that are slightly provocative will get the person, it will cause a state shift. But when you're, when you're trying to move them towards a purchase or move someone in your sales team towards an outcome, that, a behavior that you want, we should be incentivizing them with rewards rather than penalizing them. And there are too many incentive plans that I see that are trying to penalize people as well. So um, from the neurological perspective, wake uh, people up get their attention with pain, but then move them towards pleasure by showing them that pleasure. There are a couple of really important bits of research that a company called Corporate Visions has uh, delivered in conjunction with Stanford. And their research from 300 complete CRM systems, so that's a a sizable chunk of data, identified that 60% of buying cycles end in the status quo. 29.6% end up with the vendor who initially disrupts or destabilizes uh, the buyer's current preferences, is able to build a case uh, to demonstrate the value uh, of change, because change is often something that people resist, is able to create enough white space between the incumbent solution and the competition, and is able to overcome the anticipated regret and blame. Now, people don't mind change if they see it in their interest. But the problem is that most salespeople, the way they package it, it just feels like a lot of pain. So that speaks to what Moed is talking about. And 10.4% end up in a bid situation with a one in four conversion rate, which means that you have about a 2.6% chance of winning if you've driven the customer into a bid. Uh, Eric, sorry, you raised your hand. Respectfully, I understand where you're coming from in terms of pain and pleasure, but I think we've got the wrong people wearing the wrong hats. My methodology and the way I have sold for 40 years is I need the prospect to tell me about their pain and where it hurts. I need them to convince me that they are in such disarray, it's costing so much that they are ready to change. I, I, I have the, I'm of the feeling that a, that, a, that a meeting with a prospect should not be a pleasant meeting for them because you have got to get them to talk about what's wrong in the current situation. 
not try to beat them over the head with pain and use it as a weapon, but use it like a therapist. Be the safe place where they can say, all right, let me tell you what's really going on. So the two of you together can look at the problem and decide whether or not you have a solution. And to build on that, David Sandler said, never leave your prospect in pain. And I think what a lot of people uh, who use pain as their main lever um, forget is that customers buy or the customers rent outcomes. And if the conversation doesn't end in identifying the outcome that they want, then the chances of us making that sale are dramatically reduced. And we need to be a facilitator. And in fact, on a previous conversation that we had where Moed was a guest, uh, he made this point that the best salespeople are decision-making agents. They facilitate making the decision. It's not them making the decision, but they help the customer reach that conclusion. And they do so by co-developing the solution. Uh, in Sandler, you guys talk about fingerprinting. You know, have their fingerprints all over the solution. In my model, I'm talking about partnering with the customer and doing so right from the outset. So Peter, let me bring you in on this in terms of when that conversation about partnering and uh, co-developing a solution needs to begin. I've been itching to say something about this whole conversation, if, 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 if you like. And I think we're, we're biking up a right tree, but it's not the biggest tree in the, in the, in the forest, right? Okay. And that is we, we, can, we can tinker around the edges and we can train the salespeople, we can train the middle managers, we can um, have different metrics, and we can all of us in this room together can probably develop the metrics. It's not rocket science. We can come up with something that, has, that says, how do we measure positive customer engagement, right? It's, it is possible. It can be done. The problem will be to sell the model because the shareholders want more dividends. board wants to be re-elected. The CEO wants to look good so that they can go to the next job in three years and uh, get even more salary. This problem is not at the sales level. This, this problem is at the leadership level and, and even at the executive team level. So, so my question okay. to you is, we want to, if we want to change sales for good, it, which is the subject of this talk, we can't tinker around the edges and try to change comp plans and stuff like that. My question to, to you is, how do we start a conversation at senior level that says the way we've been doing it is, is no longer working? I always say this, this phrase, I don't know where I got it from, but it says, what are the, most, the seven most dangerous words in business? We have always done it this way. And, and, I'm and with you. So I, 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 I wonder how many CEOs would be prepared to start a conversation that says, what would happen to you if you stopped the pressure from the top, if you resisted the board, maybe, or, or convinced the board or influenced the board and said, well, why don't we become a, a truly customer-focused organization, not, not just one that talks about it and says, you know, our customers are really happy with what we're doing and they're not, because the IBM statistics show that 80% of, um, 90% of CEOs say, we deliver a superior customer experience and only 10% of their customers agree with that statement. Right? So, so there, there is a, a, a either a lip service or, or a, a complete ignorance at the top in terms of what happens at the front line. Right? All this is numbers and we talk about the, the sales manager that has a spreadsheet in one hand and a blowtorch in the other. You know, <laughs> So the conversation should be about how do we make it a more pleasant buying experience for the customer? And that is a conversation that has to start at the top because of this crazy passing the buck from the, the shareholder down to the sales rep. Uh, and I couldn't agree more. I, uh, that, that's definitely another 
critical area. And of the top, if we had to pick five areas, that would be one of the five. Because if we don't address that issue, then all that will happen is they'll pay lip service to it. And they'll do what you said earlier on, which is at the beginning of the month, be customer centric. And by the end of the month, do anything you can to get the deal in. But it, it does take an immensely brave leader to uh, go up against the market and the shareholders. And in some cases, it could be fatal because if their share price drops enough, they could be acquired. It's about the compensation, so the way that they're compensated as well, right? If it's all about numbers, that's how they're going to manage the company. If the comp plan includes the customer's perspective and, and the customer satisfaction and the customer engagement um, quality, then it would change the whole culture of the organization. But I, I wonder how many organizations are actually brave enough to do that. Interestingly enough, what we have seen, that it's one of only a handful of fantastic examples. Palo Alto Networks, under the leadership of Patty Hatter, who is a breathtaking sales leader, decided that they were going to move to a, an outcome-based pricing model. So you could buy A, B, and C for X amount, A, B, C, D, and F for Y amount, and A, B, C, D, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P for Z amount. And what was really interesting is by doing that in their professional services unit only, their professional services group grew 93% on the year in one quarter. Now, that proves the efficacy. Yeah, 93% is impressive. And it's Palo Alto, so it's not a, you know, a tiny number. But that was 93 on the year in one quarter by focusing on the customer's outcome. So we know that this stuff works because I've seen a handful of examples where people do this. But it also then speaks to a bigger question, which, again, I don't want this to be um, about bashing people, but it definitely needs to be spoken about, which is that the way investors behave, which is often more akin to being a speculator or a gambler, their incentive, their drive is to make a lot of money and get the hell out of Dodge as quickly as possible. And that flies 180 degrees counter to the interest of creating long-term effective customer relationships where we are consistently perceived as the customer's partner. And that then drives the board and the chief exec and all the CXOs compensation as well, and also their job security. So I think there's a bigger question. And uh, it then raises the question, where do we start? Because I don't think we can do this effectively in many publicly listed companies, and thus they are an incredibly brave uh, leader. And I think it's in the mid-market that is still privately owned. I think that would be a natural area for us to focus this discussion. And for those of you who are uh, listening, please feel free to comment and make your suggestions or even talk about your experiences. So Lee says, an everyone culture, deliberately developmental organization that outperform most other companies with no comp plan. Interesting. Okay. So Lee, I'm going to send you an invite uh, so you can come and talk about it. And that way I pass the buck because I'm really good at delegation. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're waiting for Lee to sign on. I have a, a comment. The purpose of this is sales a force for good. 
and I'm right with you. Sales needs to have an ethical <laughs> And I think the ethical standard in sales is that we always have to make sure that our prospect, when they become our client, that whatever amount they spend with us, that they win bigger than we do. If I charge them $5,000, $10,000, or a million dollars to do something, but their ROI is three, four, five times that measurably, that's an ethical sale. If I sell them something and, and, they, and it does not work, and I knew up front it probably wasn't going to work, I should have made that sale in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I, I'm not sure. Because really? if it's a success only in financial terms, you're leaving ah. out a whole bunch of other benefits, right? So, so even if it's a one-on-one and they get a return on one-on-one, so they don't actually make any money on the deal. But, but another factor changes for the better. Say, say, um, credibility in the marketplace, exposure, customer um, attention. The ROI also could be that in a three-year time they get the ROI. They're buying computer equipment. Yeah. But, but, I'm, but I'm saying the 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 I. What my point is that the my point is that the R is not always financial. Okay, that, that I accept. And I, I think part of the problem is that too often we put the financial cart before the customer horse. And as a result of that, what we end up with is a very disappointed customer. Um, and we need to have conversations that go deeper than just money. But historically, 60, 70% of CEOs, particularly in larger companies, come from finance. And that's the lens that they look through the world. Uh, and net result of that is you end up with people focused on finance and the numbers. Plus they measured that way. Yeah. So th- that raises all sorts of interesting questions. Lee, where are you? Come. I've sent you the link on LinkedIn as a message. Lee's just arrived. Ha, 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 ha. Excellent. Welcome, Lee. Hello there. So you asked the question. Go ahead and answer it. <laughs> well, I haven't really got an answer, but I, I, one of the this it it kind of feeds into some things that you've already said, and that is that these development deliberately developmental organisations focus on coaching and everyone revealing what they don't get right, and then everybody learns from that. A bit like the black box that the pilot has, and. Every time everyone can feedback to any level, so the most junior person can give feedback to the CEO if they think the CEO is not making something clear and it, they're totally encouraged to do so. Now, these organisations outperform most other companies because, and they just give people a salary to do what they do in the best way. With no comp plan, but the leaders at the top are the ones that have implemented it, which goes to actually what Peter said, and it creates a mindset culture, like a growth mindset culture, that everybody is looking to be a better version of themselves every day and support everybody else, and it's a totally different way of being. Now, when I read the book and Everyone Culture, I thought I can see that that really works, but I could never quite figure out in my own mind how you would get 
salespeople to be interested in going to work for an organisation like that that didn't reward them for the extra effort. But then maybe if you gave them a big enough salary and I I don't know, that's why I asked the question because I've been trying to figure that out ever since I read that book. So so I think what you're saying is that that culture is uh, compliance for breakfast. Yes. (laughs) It really, really uh, a really nasty diet. Bile. Well. Bile. Uh, so um, let's have a look at what Fred says. Right. Okay. But Fred, the big challenge here is I remember interviewing a CEO and he said there are three types of money. There's good money, there's smart money, and there's bad money. And often good money is dressed up as smart money, but it's bad money. And part of the problem is that a lot of investors are not focused on the right end of the problem. Yes, uh, they can improve the sales strategy. And I know a lot of my friends work with PE and uh, venture capital to go in and drive that. But they never really address these fundamental issues because what they do is they try and put in new technique or new methodology. And one of the issues that I have as a trainer of salespeople, is the absolute fixation on technique without a fundamental understanding of intent. Because a salesperson who comes to a sale with the wrong intent, which is to try and make the sale, instead of, like Eric said, I'm here to help. And let let me give you a brilliant example of this. One of the best salespeople on the planet today is a lady from uh, Juliana's company. Uh, Her name is Caroline Pino. And Caroline has just been awarded Salesperson of the Year at Splunk in her first year. Um, Now, the story is more interesting because Caroline, in her first month while she was going through onboarding training, felt sick, went to the hospital, and got diagnosed with cancer. So she has been performing at around two hours a day. Now, she finished the year at 360% of quota, okay? Now, this, I mean, the ramifications of that story alone are significant because when we consider the amount of wasted time, energy, effort, and money that most salespeople uh, inflict, both on their employer and their customers, Caroline's story tells the opposite end of that. What she also does is she turned up and she identified the four customers to whom she could devote her energy. And the opening question is, I am here to help. How can I help? What help do you need? And she then spent the year working with them, getting the fingerprints all over the solution, collaborating, partnering with them to solve the problem. But the other really fascinating quality about Caroline is her EQ is off the scale. And what she was able to do was drive enormous discretionary effort internally, because I think that's one of the biggest battle salespeople uh, face, is trying to galvanize uh, their own organization to work towards the customer's uh, success and outcome. Because everybody is trying to play their bit, do their bit in their own little fiefdom. And what they're not focused on is that customer. And so... I would like to hold her up to a shining example as a shining example. I think one of the really important factors here is that we need to start thinking 
differently as salespeople about what our role really is. And it goes hand in glove with that big issue of how do we change the way investors and business leaders measure and compensate uh, and what the intended outcomes are. But when I interviewed Chris Dannon, who was Zig Ziglar's uh, right-hand man for 38 years, he said something really interesting, which has stuck with me, which is when he is prospecting, he's prospecting for a customer who will be a customer in 5, 10, 15 years' time. He's never prospecting for now. And I think part of the issue is the focus on the immediacy. It's about hitting quota. It's about getting this quarter's number in. And that serves nobody in the long run. Because what I see is lots of businesses being built on shaky fundamentals. I saw a report about three, four months ago that said the, uh, the median profit margin in uh, the median level of profit in the top 100 SaaS companies is 0%. That's the median in the top 100. Now, that to me speaks to exactly what Peter was talking about, which is that the businesses are being built on the basis of an exit, on rapid growth at any cost. And the human impact of that, and we're seeing it all the time in sales, is massive levels of burnout, mental ill health. We're seeing the turnover rates. I mean, I've come across companies that have 120% turnover in their sales team. The, the cost is excruciating. And any shareholder who is allowing that to continue unchallenged has to be out of their minds. But I'm seeing it all the time. So, Tom, come in on this. This is kind of a sore topic. I could spend hours on this topic because this is what got me out of corporate America was this shareholder mentality around uh, making a number. And I'll give you an example, uh, a good example. There was one company I was with, the market was growing at 15% per year. Our goal was 20% per year growth. We came in at 19.9% growth. I did a um, dealer appreciation breakfast with the dealers across the world at a, at a national sales meeting, stood up and congratulated them on making the number. And uh, the CEO got up behind me and said, just, you know, I want to also want to congratulate you all. But I just want to correct one thing that Tom said is our goal was 20%. We only hit 19.9%. And so, um, you know, what do you think it did in terms of deflating the egos, the mentality, the, the morale of everybody in the room? Now, the, the funny part about it was, We'd have been at 23%, but we had some dealers on credit hold. The orders were in, but the, the order product couldn't ship. So we actually would have beat that 20%. But none of yeah, that the operational capability. Yeah, none of that ever came out. So, you know, I, I think that's a that's one of the fundamental problems of uh, of the way in which companies are operate and the way people are compensated and paid. So low torch. They treat the sales team like a redheaded stepchild. <laughs> No offense intended to anyone. My granddaughters were in here. Yeah. Um, they treat them like a redheaded stepchild, and we're just supposed to do their, you know, the bidding of what corporate says. People have to start creating sales cultures, and that starts from the top down. We're talking about the CEO. We're talking about the CFO, the CIO. 
understanding they're part of the sales process, that the receptionist at the front desk, that the delivery driver who delivers the stuff, that the repairman who comes out is all part of the sales process. It's not just, you know, Mo and Curly and Larry in the sales department, that we're all part of this together. And until that changes, until the CEO, the CFO, and, and the people in charge of the numbers start to understand that the sales team is not something you throw red meat at and just expect them to produce, that the culture, the, the experience that the customer has from how the phone is answered to the salesperson to how it's handed off to the account people, to the receivables. You know, you, you can have an accounts receivable clerk who blows a million dollar client because they didn't have the right training. That's how you create a sales culture within an organization. But most companies aren't going to make the investment. Well, there is a really interesting outcome I would love us to work towards, which is that everybody in the organization says, thank God we've got this sales team. Now, that, I think, would be a fabulous outcome. But we have to earn that. And yes, there are obstacles and challenges along the way. But instead of being the team that everybody hates, Uh, and uh, the one that everybody complains about because they sell stuff that doesn't exist. I think we have to look at how we collaborate. And one of the things that was really successful uh, in my past is getting everybody from other departments or uh, other departments to sit in on sales teams and the salespeople to sit in with other departments so that they can see the effect that their sales are having. and. What I don't see is anywhere near enough time in the onboarding process to allow that to happen. And the lack of frequent communication and accountability across the different departments means that everybody plays the blame game. They're all defending their own position. They're making excuses. They're justifying and defending. And it all means that at the end of the day, the customer gets a shitty experience. They, get, they don't get the outcome. Um, they are paying for. And uh, one of the people that I would urge all of you to follow is a guy called Bob Mester. And he's written a fabulous book. I think it's one of the three best books out there called Demand Side Sales. And he describes the customer's journey in this way. We make space. When we have a problem, we start making space. And then we start to look passively. So we trip over a piece of content, we spot a video, a headline grabs our attention. And that's the zone of consideration. Then we start actively looking. And when we start actively looking, we're deliberately and intentionally downloading white papers, getting product specifications, uh, going to webinars, that kind of thing. And then what we do is we start to make trade-offs. And this is the temptation zone. And so what people do And Challenger came out with that terrible statistic that by the time a salesperson is brought in, 57% of the buying decision has already been made. And this is where they start to make trade-offs. So you do A, B, C, D, E, uh, second company does B, D, F, and X, and so on. And they start pairing off or trading off the things that they must have. And then they're left with a shortlist. And then they bring those people in. And then they see which ones understand them better. That's the reality of it. And then they make their purchase. And if the the outcome that they get is what they expected, 
then they continue to use it. Otherwise, they go into major buyer's remorse and try and look for ways to get even or get out of the contract. Now, if it meets the expectation, and this is where I think sales really falls down, because along with uh, sales being the gingerhead's uh, ugly stepdaughter, you also have the gingerhead bastard ugly stepdaughters who are account growth and the channel. And fundamentally, I believe that the channel is really important. I think account growth is really important. But the golden child of new business is where all the money, the emphasis, the kudos, the cachet come from. And that's normally where the sales leader has come from as well. And I think we need to look at the career path into, into management and into uh, leadership in order to break the back of that, because that is really uh, dangerous. Um, you know, if you don't value the channel, then, I mean, these are the people who can get you the fastest scale and the biggest footprint in the shortest possible time at the lowest cost. Uh, these are people who've probably got relationships that go back 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you treat them like crap. Uh, account growth, that's where the profit is. Um, you know, keeping customers and keeping them coming back year after year after year and being happy is where the profit is. It's not going out and hunting for new business. Peter, your thoughts? Well, the, the, the CEO is gulled by the board quarterly, if we're talking about listed companies, on, on quarterly uh, share market reporting, right? And what do they want to report? They want to report new logos. There's an unnatural obsession with winning new logos over getting repeat business from existing customers because that doesn't count. We've already won that account. That's just mad. That's insane. That's crazy. And I just want to say that there is a way. <laughs> Go ahead. Because we were, we were talking about um, getting the different parts of the organisation to understand each other and, and possibly even Nirvana to work together, you know, so, so there, there, there is a way to, to, to do that. But um, um, the, the way that organisations are structured is actually um, working against that because we've built silos. You know, in the, in the 70s and 80s, the, the consultants said, we need to build centres of excellence. So center of excellence for sales, center of excellence for marketing, center of excellence for finance, whatever, right? Then we gave them individual managers and we gave those managers KPIs. And guess what? Everybody stopped talking to each other because they're all managing their own silos. And, and so we've kind of created this monster that, that we're now trying to put back in the box, if I mix my analogies. I, I think Lee hit the nail on the head when, when she started talking about culture. We're going off on the wrong track here in this, in this, in this um, discussion by talking about comp plans when really it's a cultural matter. And culture does, does eat strategy for breakfast. Um, but it'll be a brave CEO who actually wants to change the culture because they're only in there for like three or five years and then they're off to the next thing. They haven't got time to actually address the fundamentals that just tinker around the edges. And, um, and that's, that's enough from me. <laughs> I love that quote, the culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah, that's right. You um, know, okay. I, I've got a client that I talk about salespeople falling into the top 10%, the 80% and the bottom 10%. So without going into the detail of that, when I'm working with sales leaders, I say your top revenue generating salespeople are not necessarily your top 10% unless they are aligned with your core values and display the behaviours that you want. So yeah. the people only get into the top 10% when they can do the numbers and 
they're aligned to really good, honest values and behaviours. There is really an interesting model that, that splits people up into four quadrants, right? And it's the ones that either live or don't live the values of the organisation and the ones that either perform or don't perform, right? And there's there's a, a place in all the four quadrants and there's a, a management recommendation in terms of what to do with them as well. <laughs> Excellent. Eric, uh, one final thought before we wrap up. Yeah, you would ask me, the first question you asked me was about reinforcement. And I'm an ongoing believer of reinforcement training for about 40 years. If you take one golf lesson, you don't get better. You take a series of lessons, and one lesson builds on the other. And and so many times the sales team and the sales department has event-based training. We're going to come in and do our quarterly, our annual sales rally. We all, we feed them, we, we, we get them drunk. Somebody gets a big, you know, trophy, you know, we celebrate. But as you and I both know, seminars have a half-life of about 48 hours. The big thing that you went for on a Thursday and Friday, you walk out about two inches off the carpet. Oh, I'm going to do, going to knock them down. By Sunday night, you have forgotten half of what you didn't use. And by Tuesday, you've forgotten half of that. And two weeks from now, didn't we go to a seminar a couple of weeks ago? What was that on? Whereas if you're reinforcing stuff on a daily or weekly basis, I mean, I tell people, read 20 minutes a day. You're going to be in the bathroom, put a book in there, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes in the evening, and absorb. Learn something new. Apply it. When you're watching TV, look for things that you can apply. Look for lines. Look for techniques. But reinforcement, if you don't go back and if you don't have that coach look, He's not going to realize that your thumb is just a little to the right of where it should be. So you need to have somebody that can watch you swing and correct your swing. The best athletes in the world, amateurs practice to do it well. Professionals can't do it wrong. It's muscle memory. So our sales process, our sales technique has to be muscle memory. Well, I want to build on that, which is one of the things that I see as a profession is too many salespeople have a sense of entitlement that the company is responsible for their training. I'm going to tell you now, you are responsible for your own development. If the company happens to invest, great. But if you are not constantly investing in your own learning, getting mentors, getting coaches, practicing, developing accountability groups, and looking to improve, then I'm afraid you're not very good at your job. Peter, final word? Well, um, there's a lot of talk recently um, about sales managers being sales coaches. I don't believe that the that the organisation should just abdicate the, any sort of responsibility for training. I don't, I don't, I don't buy into that. What Eric said is, is dead right, that just sticking somebody into a room for, for an hour, two, three days, filling them up with knowledge and then patting them on the back and saying goodbye now, prosper. Uh, is, is, that's a hormone Gonna work, right? The, um, Eric, you might want to look up on Wikipedia, look up um, Hermann Ebbinghaus. He invented something in the 1800s. He invented the forgetting curve. He said that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing that um, anything, any learning that's not reinforced within 30 days will be, uh, 80% of learning that's not reinforced will be forgotten within 30 days, right? What's, what so was the, the name? Hermann Ebbinghaus. H-E-R-M-A-N-E-B-B-I-N-G-H-A-U-S. It's in the chat. It's the forget. Forgetting forget curve. curve. The curve. Right? But 
It's it's really interesting. So it, it, I, I, I rail against training if it's not reinforced with coaching. And the sales manager should not be spreadsheet in one hand, blowtorch in the other. They should be about coaching the salespeople to be successful. And, and that's probably the final word from me because I've got to go. Well, and the, the research on this is absolutely clear. Managers who coach well for three to three and a half hours per rep per month achieve an average quota attainment of 105%. Managers who do less than that have an average quota of attainment of between 40 and 60%. I'll do one last statistic. There was a question being asked of salespeople, how many would even invest a dollar in being coached by their sales rep, by their sales manager? <laughs> how many would even invest one dollar in being coached? And, and, and 80% says I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest one dollar. Well, Peter, being a sales manager is a supervisor and authoritarian position. What they need to do is, is we as sales managers, we as owners, need to become mentors to the people who work for us. And we, pick our, own, and we pick our own mentors. So I can't assign you a mentor. We tend to gravitate to the people that we want to learn from. So they have to start attracting the people that they want to spend time with them rather than you will spend time with me. Thank you. Lee, one final word? For me, it's about culture. It's about developing a growth mindset culture where everybody takes responsibility for their own development. They go in every day wanting to be a better version of themselves than they were the day before. And I've seen it, you know, I've worked with clients and we've been able to do that. So it is possible, even in a sales force, you know, that's got hundreds of people in it, but it has to start from the CEO who says, Come on, take us there. Excellent. Peter, how can people get hold of you? Well, uh, my, my website's um, imaginatively called peterstrokop.com. <laughs> I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and and uh, uh, we're, we're going to um, – Marcus is going to help me launch a book in the EMEA um, region in, uh, in April. You can find me really easily. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm not John Smith. Excellent. <laughs> Eric, how can people get hold of you? My website is aninsideman.com. Pop me an email or uh, through the website. I'd be more than happy to chat with people. Uh, and one of the things that I like to do, Marcus, is I try to not have retail conversations. I know that I am not always the solution to the problem. When I talk to people, if I'm not the solution, I feel my job is to get them to the person who can help them whether or not, especially even if I don't make any money. It's not about me. It's got to be about them. Absolutely. And Lee? You can find me here on LinkedIn, and my website is sales-consultancy.com. Excellent. Thank you all of you so much for your contribution and all the other guests who are kind enough to give their insight. For those of you who would like to get hold of me, then you can get a hold of me at marcus at laughs-last.com. We are looking for volunteers. And um, you may be someone who'd be willing to be a moderator or an ambassador. It may be that you'd be willing to lead a discussion group. It may be that you are technically savvy enough to understand how to use a tool like Miro, where we're going to be capturing all these lessons throughout the year and make them free to everybody forever. We're going to be using Clubhouse. If you want to set up communities on Facebook or LinkedIn or those other ones uh, that I'm too young, uh, <laughs> I'm too old to use, uh, then feel free. 
But I'm going to be running an event on Thursday this week to see what volunteers. Uh, we've got 23 so far. We need more. This is a global movement. We are dealing with a massive challenge ahead. And I want people to throw themselves into it, give as much or as little effort as they can. And any help that you can give, that would be fabulous. And the event is at, so it's at 5.30 UK time, which probably means 1.30 Eastern Standard. Wait a second. You're not on daylight savings time. We are well, not yet. No, uh, we, we move over to daylight saving time next weekend. Well, it might be 2.30. You might want to check on that. Uh, yeah, so it's the, it's the other way. Yeah, so it's four hours. No, it's no, it's four hours. So five thirty. So yeah, we're normally five hours ahead of you. Just look at your calendars. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, I've got to go. Peter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Okay. So, for those of you who would like to get involved, then email me, direct message me. You can get me on Facebook. Um, and uh, if you use any posts uh, about this event, hashtag it either Sales of Force for Good or S-A-F-F-B, and I'll be posting events around the internet uh, to get you guys involved. Anything that you can do to help. And then take what we learn and try and put it into action in your business or in your day-to-day activity. And if you've got a boss, a CXO, who is brave enough to look at these changes, then have them get involved. We're going to be running these events monthly, uh, and there'll be local events on a regular basis throughout every month as well. We're going to pick five shitty, gnarly problems, one of which we know is going to be changing the way boards and executives view sales and changing the culture to be a more sales culture. Another one I definitely want to look at is recruitment and another uh, recruitment on boarding, training, all of that. Another one is compensation and uh, measurement. Because I think these three are critical, but I'm open to having my mind changed. So this is about you guys. It's not about me, but that's where my thinking is at the moment. Marcus, in terms of topics, changing the perception of how people view salespeople and interact with them, should that be one of the goals? Yes, maybe. It's up for discussion before, before I make, put my stamp on this. This is about everybody in the community. It's not just my opinion. So uh, I would moot that it should be, but I'm open to discussion. And this is a democracy. We're going very pirate on this. And the more more people that we get involved in this, the better off it is. Absolutely. My fundamental belief is that our success will be determined in the future by our ability to collaborate. And creating those conditions for the next generation of salespeople. Uh, And again, let me just go back to the mission statement right at the beginning. Okay. We want to make sure that sales is a valued powerhouse throughout the economy. Identify and drive success for customers, partners, and sellers. Reward all who contribute to that success. Raise the standards of behavior, ethics, and skill in our beloved profession. Uh, build future leaders and give them the tools and skills to make sales a force for good and make sales an aspirational career choice for future generations, not something that the dummies did because they couldn't become a doctor. Yeah, it should be a profession. 
It really, it really is. I mean, the world that um, is described as being morally uh, bankrupt isn't one that I recognize from the people that I've spent the last 20 years working with. I know it's out there, and there are some fabulous salespeople who are not being given the chance that they deserve. Here, here. Okay. Excellent. So with that, I'm going to go because my kids are banging on the, the French windows telling me that I have to go and have supper. Thank you all so much. Get in touch. And if you would like to be involved in the uh, the volunteers meeting, DM me your email address with uh, Sales of Force for Good or SAFFG at the top. Then I will add you to the list. Okay. Fabulous. Thank you all. Take care. Bye, Good night. Everyone. Thanks for inviting us, Marcus. Thank My pleasure. You. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.